One of the most notorious miracles in the ministry of Jesus is the feeding of the 5,000. I don't think its importance can be overstated. Out of all of the miracles Jesus performed, it is the only miracle in addition to the resurrection of Christ that's recorded in all four Gospels. We read of it in Matthew chapter 14, in Mark chapter 6, in Luke chapter 9, and in John chapter 6. It's a story that portrays Jesus as Jehovah Jireh, which is a Hebrew phrase meaning the God who provides. The provisions of Jesus are accurate. His accuracy is amazing. This morning, we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. I invite you to take a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 6. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 6, I'll begin reading at verse 30, and I'll conclude at verse 44. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples and set them before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. The disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Earlier in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had empowered his disciples to preach the gospel and to drive out demons. He sent them out two by two, and upon their return, they gave powerful testimony of all they had seen and heard and experienced. When the crowd learned that the band was back together and that Jesus and the disciples had reassembled, they all gathered around them, for by this time, they were like celebrities. They recognized Jesus and all 12 of the disciples. The crowd was so pressing and crushing that the disciples did not even have time to get anything to eat. So turning to the apostles, Jesus said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Let's get some rest. 
Now these words were perfection for an aching soul. The disciples, while they were uh, invigorated because of the success of their ministry, they were also completely exhausted. So they got into a boat, they set sail across the Sea of Galilee, they went from Capernaum, and it is Luke who tells us that they landed in that remote place called Bethsaida. There's an important lesson for us to heed in all of this. And the lesson is this. That all of us need some alone time with Jesus. You were not created to go and run and serve and minister 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You were created with a great need to get alone with the Savior. To have some time in your regular rhythm and rhyme of your schedule to get alone with the Lord, to commune with Him, to talk with Him in prayer, to read His Holy Scripture, to begin to discern His still small voice, to recognize His voice as He speaks to you and gives you instructions of what He wants you to do. All of us need to get away with the Lord. None of us were created so that we would constantly give out of ourselves to other people. For if you constantly are giving of yourself to others, eventually you'll just simply give out. So you, like me, all of us, are created to get alone with the Lord and to spend some time with Him. That's an important lesson, especially on this first Sunday of a brand new year. I don't know any follower of Christ who will say, I spend enough time with Jesus Every disciple I know says, you know, I need to spend more time with the Lord, more this year than last year. And here we are on the first Sunday of a brand new year, and maybe you and I need to make a commitment unto God that we will have some regular time, more regular time, when we get alone with the Lord and just have some alone time with Jesus. That's what the disciples did. They got alone with him, but it only took a few uh, miles and minutes to sail from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Both of those towns are kind of northern coastal towns on the Sea of Galilee. It was just a few additional miles to walk around that northern shore. And by the time Jesus and the disciples landed at Bethsaida, we are told that the crowd who recognized them outpaced them as they walked and they got there. And Jesus was staring at a large crowd. It's hard for us to visualize how large this crowd really was. All four of the gospel writers tell us that 5,000 were fed that day. It's Matthew who clarifies that that number 5,000 only includes the men. The women and children are not included in that number. Therefore, most give a conservative estimate that on that day, Jesus was staring at about 20,000 individuals. 5,000 men, probably 5,000 women, probably 10,000 children. 20,000 needy people all right there in front of Jesus and the disciples. Oftentimes, as a pastoral staff, we'll get together and we'll talk about logistics. How do you accommodate for a crowd? We'll think about various services that we have throughout the year, think about our weekly worship experiences, and, and we want to do well to accommodate the crowd that we have. And so we'll, we'll talk about all kinds of logistical things, facilities and room space and parking lots and nursery area and toilet paper and, and everything you can think of. We try to, to try to anticipate what a crowd would be. And on every given Sunday, week in and week out, we accommodate about a thousand individuals, yet in our 
story, on this day, Jesus is staring at a crowd 20 times larger than what we anticipate week to week. 20,000 people. And how does Jesus respond to these people? Does the crowd overwhelm him? Does he get paralyzed? Is he a little anxious in his spirit? The answer is no. He responds with great compassion. For he looks upon them as sheep without a shepherd. That phrase, sheep without a shepherd, has rich Old Testament overtones to it. It is Isaiah who says, The Lord is the shepherd who tends to his flock. He carries the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. It's the psalmist who says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In places like Numbers and Ezekiel, the Lord promises to send that great shepherd. And Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I call them by name and they follow me because they recognize my voice. Jesus is that great shepherd to the sheep. And on this day, Jesus responds with a great deal of compassion. He looks upon the crowd and he sees their needs. He looks into their eyes and he sees exactly uh, what they have come for. And Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. I think it's very intentional uh, why Mark places this story on the heels of his description of King Herod in his dealing with John the Baptist. For the immediate preceding passage is about that story about King Herod. See, the people uh, here in this uh, area and in this region, they, they had a king, but he was a pathetic king. His name was Herod. And, and, and every story about Herod is, is kind of a, a bad story about Herod. Herod had an illicit affair with his brother's wife. His brother's name was Philip. His brother's wife's name was Herodias. So apparently Herod and Herodias were hooking up. And they had an illicit affair. And the only person courageous enough to speak out against it was a man named John the Baptist. Now, Herod didn't know exactly what to do with John the Baptist. So at the very least, he threw him into prison, hoping that that would teach him a lesson and silence him. We are told that on Herod's birthday... He threw a rowdy party for all of his buddies. Apparently, they were all in a drunken stupor because the daughter of the mistress, she came in and she erotically danced and the text says that it greatly pleased Herod so that he promised her, I'll give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. That's how you know the king is drunk because no king in a sober mind would commit up to half of his kingdom to anybody. Well, this young girl goes back to her mother, the mistress, Herodias, and says, Mom, what do I need to ask for? And the mother said, you asked for the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. She goes back into the room where King Herod and all of his buddies were uh, reclining. And Herod said, what do you want me to do for you? And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And all of a sudden, King Herod got sober. He realized this wasn't going to be a good idea, but he made the promise in front of all of his rowdy friends, so he had to make good on it. So he ordered the execution of John the Baptist. He beheaded him, placed his head on a silver platter, and gave it to the young girl. Mark tells us that story for us to know that King Herod was selfish and sinister. 
The very next line is a description of King Jesus. And King Jesus is the opposite of King Herod. King Jesus is one who is caring and compassionate. Don't forget that Mark is writing uh, to persecuted believers, Gentile believers living in and around Rome in the mid-60s of the first century. They're experiencing enormous persecution. And what Mark is communicating to that audience, he's communicating to this audience. He's saying, listen, our ultimate allegiance is not to an earthly king, is not to a God but our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus. And King Jesus is so much better than any king on this planet for King Jesus is compassionate. He is caring. He sees the need and he can meet the need. Jesus looked upon the crowd as sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus, King Jesus, is so compassionate. So he looked at this crowd. He ministered to them. He healed their sick. He taught the gospel. It took a long time to work through 20,000 individuals. What makes that stat so staggering is that the population of Bethsaida and Capernaum combined was no more than 5,000 individuals. To say that 20,000 people are there is to say that the entire region is there. Maybe all of Galilee is there. I mean, they are packed right there. And Jesus ministers and moves among the crowd. He locks eyes with individuals. He heals their sick. He speaks to them. He speaks to the entire crowd. But then other times, he speaks just one-on-one to individuals and he ministers to them in in perfect ways. Takes a long time to work his way through 20,000 individuals, don't you think? It got to be late. Some of the disciples came up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, this is a remote place. And people are starting to get hungry. And to be honest, we're starting to get hungry. Why don't you dismiss the crowd so they can go to the local eateries and buy something to eat? Let them go to, to Arby's and to Subway and to Chick-fil-A, you know, get the Baptist bird. Let, let them go and get something to eat. It sounds like a great idea until you realize where are 20,000 people going to go? This is a remote place. And if they go into the marketplace of Bethsaida, that's only prepared to feed about 2,000 in its population. And if they retrace their steps and go over to Capernaum, that's only going to have a marketplace that can feed about two to 3,000 individuals. Where are 20,000 people going to go and purchase anything to eat? So Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. Oh, they thought he was joking. Jesus, how are we going to give them something to eat? I mean, look at this massive crowd. It would take eight months of a man's wages to feed this crowd. We don't have 200 denarii to purchase bread. And if we did have that much money to purchase that much bread, where are we going to get that much bread at this hour, at this location? How in the world can we feed this many people? Jesus, certainly you've got to be joking. You can't be serious. How are we going to feed this many individuals? We don't have 200 denarii. We don't have eight months of wages to give bread to all these individuals. We don't have that much bread. And Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? And at this moment, they realize, okay, Jesus is being serious about this. He's asking us to do something that humanly we can't do. And Jesus just stares at them. It's that awkward, sovereign stare, right? I mean, Jesus ever stared at you like this? Like, come on, get with it. Get with the program. I'm telling you to do something. Go out and do it. And Jesus just simply says, go and see. Go and see how many loaves you have. We're so familiar with the story that sometimes we bypass the details and we skim right past them. 
It is only John in his version of the story that tells us anything about that little boy with a sack lunch. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us anything about the little boy. John is the one that tells us there was a little boy with a lunch, but all four of the gospel writers conclude all the disciples could find were five loaves of bread and two fish. That's it. Five loaves of bread and two fish. In John's rendering of the story, it's Andrew who brings that little boy's lunch back up the hillside. I can well imagine that as Andrew comes up, he says, hey, Jesus, I just stole this little boy's lunch. It was like taking candy from a baby. Wasn't that hard at all? But Jesus, all I could find were five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, on the one hand, I want to applaud this boy's mom. I mean, is she the only responsible parent in the crowd? Is she the only one who had the forethought of packing Johnny's little lunch so he would have something to eat? I mean, it seems that she's the only mom who, who prepared a, a little sack lunch for her son. And on the one hand, I want to applaud her for her forethought. On the other hand, I've got to question her. What mother in her right mind would give her boy five loaves of bread for lunch? That's a lot of bread, right? Five loaves of bread. Nobody needs that many carbs. Nobody needs that many carbs. And if this is the diet of this little boy, he's going to be constipated for days, right? I mean, if this is what he eats on a regular basis, five loaves of bread and two fish. So on the one hand, I applaud this mother for her forethought. On the other hand, I think, what are you thinking? This is a crazy lunch to give to your son. Oh, but then when you investigate the words a little bit closer, you realize that the loaf of bread is not five loaves of Wonder Bread. It's more like five crackers, small. And the two fish, they're not two 10-pound trout that we're talking about. It's just a couple of sardines. So this meal that the boy has of five crackers and two sardines it's really more like a Lunchable than anything else. It's very small, not much to it. In fact, this is told to us intentionally so that we conclude that the means of the disciples were meager. They didn't have much. They couldn't find much. They didn't know what to do. And maybe, uh, maybe this is where this story hits you today. Because the greatest thing the disciples do in this story is they take this human impossibility to the one who makes all things possible. The greatest act of these disciples is that they take this human impossibility to the one for whom all things are possible. Maybe as you stand at the beginning of 2019, you are dragging into this new year some human impossibilities. Maybe you're coming into a brand new year and cancer is still all over your body. Or maybe it's not uh, the disease of in your life, but in the life of your loved one. Maybe it's your daughter or son that's a prodigal still in the far country. Maybe you're still unemployed as you look at a brand new year. Maybe your finances are still messed up. You're doing your very best, but it seems that there's always more month than money. 
Maybe your spouse is, is not living like the Lord ought to, uh, like the Lord wants him or her to live, living like a fool in the world, and you're still bringing all of that human impossibility into 2019. And as you look at your problem, there's nothing in your uh, power to fix it. There's no way that you can handle the situation. There's no way you can accommodate. There's no way you can take care of the problem that's in front of you. You've got a problem or a predicament, a situation or a scenario, and there's no way that you can fix it. It's a human impossibility. And at best, your answer is nothing more than a couple of crackers and a couple of sardines. And the best thing you can do, my friend, is the best thing the disciples did. They took their human impossibility to the one for whom all things are possible. They said, Jesus, this is all we can find. Jesus, this is all we've got. Jesus, we got nothing. This is not much at all. It's a lunchable. That's all it is. And this is all that we have. But Jesus, all that we have, we'll give to you. Because if anybody can fix this, you can. If anybody can take care of this, you can take care of this. So Jesus, we're bringing this human-sized impossibility to the one who makes all things possible. So Jesus told them, to divide up the crowd into groups of hundreds and fifties. Jesus took the bread and the fish. He prayed and thanked God for it. He blessed it. And it began to multiply. He took the broken pieces of bread and the broken pieces of fish and placed them in the little basket of the disciples. The disciples in those days would have carried a little wicker basket with them. I am not going to call it a purse because I refuse to visualize these macho manly disciples carrying a purse. So it's not a purse. It's a little wicker basket. And so they carry this little wicker pouch with them. And that's what they open up. And Jesus puts in there pieces of the bread and the fish. And then they turn around and they go out and they minister to the crowds of hundreds and fifties as they're seated all along the countryside. And once again, this is how Jesus does ministry. He deposits something into you and then you in turn go and give it to somebody else. What you've received, you give to others. Before you can do ministry for Christ, you've got to receive ministry from Christ. You cannot... Give what you have not received. And so you've got to receive it. And then once you receive the blessing, then you turn around and give the blessing to somebody else. It's a beautiful picture of how ministry is done. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus solves the problems, how Jesus ministers to the masses. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus uses you and uses me to accomplish his purpose in his world. And so he blesses us to bless others. He gives us that which we receive and then we give unto others. And this went on for hour upon hour. The disciples were taking what they received and they were turning around and giving it unto the people. It is John MacArthur who said, what we fail to realize is the magnitude of this feast. This is a massive feast. Think about what Jesus had to produce, had to multiply in this story. If five loaves of bread and two fish were enough to feed a boy, what's an adult-sized portion? Double that? Triple that? Some cases, quadruple that? How much did Jesus have to produce? In a very conservative estimate, if you just do the math, 
In this moment, on this day, Jesus had to produce at least 150,000 loaves of bread and in excess of 60,000 fish just to feed this crowd. And John MacArthur also concludes that Jesus makes barley loaves out of grain that had never been planted in the sin-infested ground. And he produced fish which had never swam in sin-polluted waters of this world. In other words, Jesus produced food the way it was supposed to taste. Food that was untouched, untainted by sin. Because sin had touched and tainted everything in humanity and in all creation, including the ground from which we get all of our food. And even the ocean from which we get much uh, of, of our, of our uh, food that we eat. And so uh, Jesus was able to produce barley loaves and fish that were not touched or tainted by sinful humanity so that it it must have been more than one person that as they ate they thought to themselves I have never tasted bread this good I I have never tasted fish this awesome this is great compliments to the chef I mean, I don't know who that is on the hillside. I don't know what he's doing up there. I don't, know if, I don't know if he has a green egg or a George Foreman grill. I don't know what kind of spices he's using. I don't know what he's doing up there, but he is making some awesome bread and awesome fish. Compliments to the chef. Scripture says that everybody ate and they were satisfied. That word satisfied means that they had their fill. They were completely full, completely satisfied. So all day long, Jesus had healed their family members by the hands of Christ, stirred their hearts by the words of Christ, filled their stomach by the food of Christ. It's the next day that many of these people come back. And according to John's version, they come back and they want to make him king. Don't miss that. They want to make Jesus king. And Jesus says, the only reason you're here is because you had your bellies filled yesterday. He says, I'm not an entitlement program. I'm not a free lunch. In John's version, in John chapter 6, it's Jesus who says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. I'm so much more than just meeting your physical needs. I can meet all of your spiritual needs. I can meet all of your needs, for I am the bread of life. In our story, it is Mark who says that... uh, there were 12 basketfuls of bread and, and fish left over. When I was younger, I used to think that the way the disciples got those 12 baskets full of bread and fish was that they kind of scoured the hillside, kind of like sanitation crews do at the end of the county fair, just picking up trash. And they accumulated trash, and there was enough trash to fill 12 baskets full. But then I realized, oh, wait a minute. They're not being a sanitation crew. They, they didn't get those scraps from the hillside. They picked up those broken pieces of bread and fish at the feet of Christ. Because Jesus broke just enough bread and just enough fish, not only to feed that massive crowd, but also to feed his hungry disciples. For who ate those 12 baskets left over? The disciples. The disciples ate that food so that nothing was left over and nothing was wasted and nothing was put in a Ziploc bag and nothing was put in Tupperware and nothing was put on ice. Nothing was saved for another day. Jesus provided perfectly for his people. His provision is accurate and his accuracy is amazing. 
Jesus provided exactly what was needed on that day for the entire crowd, including his disciples. So you come to the end of this story and Jesus is Jehovah Jireh, which means he's the God who provides. His provisions are accurate. His accuracy is amazing. So that Jesus provided just enough. He provided enough to feed 5,000 men and 5,000 women and 10,000 children. He provided enough to feed 12 hungry preaching disciples and not one morsel was wasted. He provided just enough. He provided everything that was needed. He provided for the needs of his people perfectly. He is King Jesus. He is the one who provides with care and compassion. He provides with perfection. You stop and realize this is how Jesus has been in all the gospel. Not just in this story. But Jesus provided everything that was needed by the lunatic named Legion. He provided life that was needed for Jairus' daughter. It is Jesus who provided healing for the woman who had an issue of blood for some 12 years. It is Jesus that provided perfectly the cleansing for the leper. It is Jesus who provided healing for the man with a shriveled hand, even on the Sabbath day. It is Jesus that provided perfect peace for his disciples in the raging storm as they're there in the boat. It is Jesus who has always provided with accuracy, and his accuracy is amazing. Like you, I can give testimony that Jesus has provided everything that I've ever needed. Jesus has provided all the forgiveness I will ever need for my sin, past, present, and future. Jesus has provided all the innocence that I need so that I am declared righteous in the sight of God both now and forevermore. Jesus has to, to provided everything that's needed in my life and in my, in, my, uh, in my home. Jesus provides a roof over my head and food on my table, clothes on my back, air in my lungs. Jesus provides everything that I've ever needed. And on this first Sunday of a brand new year, I just come to celebrate the Jesus that I know. I just come to celebrate the Jesus that I've experienced because Jesus is a Christ who provides with accuracy and his accuracy is amazing. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at the provisions of Christ. I'm amazed at the goodness of Christ. I'm amazed at the graciousness of Christ. I'm amazed at the mercy of Christ. I'm amazed at the love of Christ. I'm amazed at the forgiveness of Christ. I'm amazed at the passion of Christ. I'm amazed at the purposes of Christ. I'm amazed that Christ can use somebody like me, a sinner like me and a sinner like you. I don't know about you, but there are often times when I just stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And I want how he can love me, a sinner condemned, unclean, but oh, how marvelous and oh, how wonderful and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for a wretch like me. I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at the goodness of Christ. And on this day, as we begin a brand new year, let us coming to a new year and we don't know what we're going to experience. We don't know what's going to face us over the next 52 weeks of this year. 
We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know the one who holds tomorrow in his hands. And so I'm just going to live this year like you're going to live this year. I'm going to trust Jesus. I'm going to trust the one who died for me. I'm going to trust the one who was raised from the dead. I'm going to trust the one who ascended into the heavens. I'm going to trust the one who one day is going to split the eastern sky and return to rescue his bride. I'm going to trust the Lord Jesus. And this year, I want you to take your human impossibility to the one who makes all things possible. And this year, I want you to celebrate and worship the one who is that perfect provider. His provisions are accurate. And his accuracy is simply amazing. And this year, we will make much of the Lord Jesus Christ together. To God be the glory. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Lord, if there's somebody here who does not know you as Savior, and Lord, I pray that today is the day of complete surrender. Father, we don't need to masquerade. We don't need to act like we've got it all together. We don't need to act as if we're a Christian if we are not. But, oh, Father, we pray that today will be the day of surrender unto you, that we will bring to you all that which we cannot fix, cast at your feet all the human impossibilities of our lives, and we'll trust that your provision will be accurate. In Jesus' name, amen.